Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. Welcome to Episode 6, Paul, the Soldier Mechanic, a tribute from his son, Tom. In this episode, I'll be speaking with a good friend and fellow World War II history buff, Tom Hemmer, about the life and war experiences of his dad, Paul Hemmer, who served in the U.S. Army from December 1942 until January of 1946. Welcome to the show, Tom. Hey, thanks, James. But good to be here. I'm very glad you're with us today. So I want to start to ask you some questions about your dad. Before I do that, I had mentioned in my intro that you are a World War II history buff. How did that come about? It probably started with my dad, just curiosity about his adventures in World War II. He was the type of guy who never really talked too much about World War II. And as I got older, I got curious about reading World War II history And I just got curious about my dad's role in it. It occurred to me that I wanted to interview my dad about his experiences. You know, I'd never done an interview before, and I'm kind of a meticulous sort of guy. So I wanted to sit down with my dad and come up with an outline interview, kind of a chronological step through that I could use as a framework when I sat down to interview. We did that over a period of weeks. It was a lot of fun. You know, I typically would go over to my father's house for breakfast on Saturday morning. And over a period of weeks, I developed what turned out to be about a 10-page interview outline about his experiences in World War II. It was really revealing. He had never talked about any of this stuff growing up. So it it was very interesting and enlightening for me. It It was just a great experience doing it. Did he seem to have fun while he was telling his story? Yes, very much. I think a lot of the World War II veterans just didn't really talk about it unless asked because they didn't want to feel like they were boasting about it, I think. But if you ask them about it, they were usually pretty forthcoming about what their experiences were like. He did seem to enjoy doing it. That's terrific. So tell me something. When your dad gave you the interview, what did he say? uh, Well, let's start with the beginning. What did your dad do growing up? Where was he born? What was his life like before he entered the war? He uh, grew up in Syracuse, New York. He lived there. He was uh, one of six children. He was the, the third of six children. Growing up in Syracuse, graduated high school a few months before the war started. Was looking forward to growing up and going to college when the war started. And that kind of disrupted everything. I imagine it did. Did he ever share with you like where he was when, say, Pearl Harbor was bombed or anything like that? I didn't get that from him uh, exactly where he was, but I know that the impact of that was huge on his family because he and his older brother were both impacted by that. They were both drafted into the war. Right. They must have certainly known right away that they were going to be involved at some point, right? Right. So, So, yeah, my father, he would have graduated in June of 42 from high school. mm -hmm. So he was right smack in the middle of draft age individuals at that time. Oh, absolutely. So how did he come to end up in the Army? Was he drafted or enlisted? Initially, he had planned to enlist in the Navy with a couple of high school friends of his. But in conversations with one of his cousins, he found out that they were forming what's called an ordnance company in Syracuse. And his cousin encouraged him to join this ordnance company. So basically, the ordnance company repairs vehicles out in the field and manages equipment. And my father thought that sounded interesting. He applied to join the ordnance company. He was able to enlist before he was actually drafted. So he maintained some level of control over where he went because he enlisted rather than was drafted. I can imagine if you're drafted, you kind of have to go where they send you, right? 
exactly. Mm-hmm. And and it's actually he the way he put it is my draft notice was in the mail, but I guess his <laughs> father knew some people on the selective service board, okay. and so he kind of pulled some strings and said, look, you know, my son wants to join this ordinance company, so they allowed him to enlist in the ordinance company rather than be drafted. So the equipment that they were repairing in the field could have been what would they be trucks, tanks? Yeah, everything. anything that moved on the ground was what they repaired. Okay. The name of the unit was the 447th Ordnance Heavy Auto Maintenance Company. Right, because they couldn't just leave this material stranded in the field to be taken by the enemy or out of possession anyway. Right. Well, it was kind of a unique capability because the Germans really didn't have any of that type of capability. For them, once something broke in the field, they just abandoned it and left it there. Mm -hmm. And the capability that the United States had of being able to go out after the battle and gather up any equipment that wasn't completely destroyed and salvage parts out of it and use that to refit other damaged equipment and kind of recycle the equipment was was a unique capability for the United States and made a huge difference in the war. That, on top of our huge production capability, it just helped to overwhelm the German war machine. Wow, that's interesting. So when your dad enlisted, now he's in this ordnance company, you had mentioned to me when we spoke before that your dad was a little bit of a prankster. Is that true? Yeah, he was. He had what he referred to as the sweetheart soap incident. In basic training, he found out that his first sergeant, first sergeant prior, he found out he was a sweetheart soap salesman in real life before he enlisted in the army. And my father being, as I said, a bit of a prankster, got together with a couple of the other guys and they ordered a case of sweetheart soap from the PX. When the case of soap arrived, the merry pranksters peeled the labels off and plastered them all over Sergeant Pryor's sleeping quarters. <laughs> when Sergeant Pryor found out who the Merry Pranksters were, he decided they would be leaving for Europe immediately because the rest of the company wasn't scheduled to leave for another several months. He transferred him to a new unit, which left for Europe basically immediately. So that would have been, I think, around June or so of 1944, right around D-Day. Pryor didn't have a really good sense of humor. Is that what you're saying? He did not. <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about what your dad is training and then when he actually went over to Europe. So his training, he started out at Fort Niagara in uh, New York. Next stop was Camp Perry in Ohio, and then Fort Knox in Kentucky, and eventually Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And that was really where he was trained on tanks, how to operate them, how to do maintenance on them, and so forth, combat tactics. They actually tried to convince him to go in to be a tank commander. My father was not the least bit interested in that, so he was able to decline that. And basically, that was where the sweetheart soap incident occurred at Fort Campbell. That was where he was trained to operate and to repair the tanks. What happened from there? He was leaving for Europe, so they traveled by train to New York City, arrived at 42nd Street Station, and they departed total blackout conditions on July 2nd of 1944 on a troop ship. He was telling me that that first night, he said there was no open bunks. He wound up sleeping on the deck of the ship. They departed after dark, and when he woke up the next morning, he said as far as he could see, the giant convoy. Of course, by this time before, the the German submarine threat had abated somewhat. We had gotten better at convoys, anti-submarine warfare, so the threat was nowhere near as bad as it was, let's say, 42. They were able to cross the Atlantic without incident. They arrived in England the 12th of July, 1944, and then were brought to the French coast to Normandy late in July, about for roughly six weeks or so after D-Day. I would imagine that the area uh, was still a very dangerous place to be because being such a short time after the actual invasion, I would imagine that it was dangerous and there was probably enemy nearby. Six weeks 
post D-Day, they had managed, they had set up the Mulberry Harbors and so forth, and they were just unloading massive amounts of supplies onto the beachheads there. When my father's company disembarked, they disembarked in the morning and they marched until 3 a.m. pouring rain with full field pack to join the, the rest of the company. He said it was just absolutely exhausting. Half the time when you were traveling on the ground in Europe, you had no idea where you were. You were just moving with the company. Every once in a while, you'd see a road sign. That first day of landing and marching for almost 14 hours or 18 hours, he said it was just absolutely grueling. How much typically would a pack weigh? I'd say probably 30, 40 pounds at least, carrying a rifle, you know, water, gas mask. He's just gotten off the boat, so he's got literally all of his belongings with him. So I imagine it was a sizable load. Got it. So what did he encounter once he was in France? He finally joined up with the company. The way the company worked, they were a few miles behind the front line. Each day they would strike out from their camp to look for equipment that had been damaged or abandoned after fighting the day before. They would bring the equipment back where their campsite was established and they had tow trucks that could actually tow a tank that was damaged back to the campsite and so forth. And then they would salvage parts out of it. And that was kind of their day-to-day routine, just going out and bringing equipment in and salvaging parts out of it. So your dad was, we say he was soldier mechanic. Was he very mechanically inclined before he went into the service and did this kind of work, or did he learn this when he was in training? Yes, I think he did have a, a good amount of mechanical aptitude going in, and I think they trained him pretty thoroughly on maintaining trucks and jeep uh, tanks and so forth. He wound up being pretty well trained as a mechanic. Right. So now he's in France. Uh, what else happened there? What other kind of experiences? Well, one thing that he particularly remembered and he always talked about was the town of St. Lo, which is one of the first towns they encountered. That town had changed hands, I think, at least three times between the Allies and the Germans. He talked about driving through that town and he said it was just completely level. It always impressed him that just the utter destruction of that town. And then, as it turned out, years later, Brother Jimmy was living in England for a while, and my parents went over to visit him, and they went over to the Normandy invasion beaches, and my father wanted to visit St. Lo. Went there to the same spot that he was in during World War II to see the city 50 years later. It was something he always remembered. But again, they continued on through France and they bogged down in Holland for a while, lived with a family in Holland. They stayed with them. My father's unit eventually moved up into Aachen, Germany. So what happened when he was in Germany? I believe Aachen was captured, I think, in October of 44. It was when Aachen fell. The winter offensive, the Battle of the Bulge, started in December of 44. Fortunately, my father's unit was not you know, directly involved in the combat. To go back to the Sweetheart Soap incident, the unit that he was in with Sergeant Pryor, that unit was directly in the pathway of the invading Germans during the Battle of the Bulge, and that unit was almost completely wiped out. So, in retrospect, the Sweetheart Soap incident indirectly saved my father's life because if the unit he was in was safe from that combat in the Battle of the Bulge. Wow. Wow. That's incredible to think of that. Just a practical joke. Had he not made that practical joke, he may not have, uh, you may not even be talking on the phone right now. Exactly. I might not be here. That's exactly right. My goodness. So what else did your dad see in Germany while he was there that he was involved in? As the Battle of the Bulge eventually fizzled out and in probably late January, I think, of 45, as they were moving through Germany, so this would have been from late December 44 into May 45, my father's unit encountered several of the V-2 rockets that were standing on their pads pointed toward England. He had never even heard of or seen a rocket, though. It was pretty uh, pretty impressive sight. He had also discovered some of the ME-262 jet airplanes 
And again, they had never heard of jet airplanes, and they discovered one that had crashed in the field. So the Germans had a lot of technological advances that they were making with regard to rockets and jets. At this point, I guess, uh, the Allies were knocking out these V-2 launching pads. As the Germans were departing, were fleeing back toward Berlin, they were abandoning these facilities, and my father's company was coming upon them as they as they advanced. And then they also encountered some of the concentration camps. One specific thing that he witnessed was called the Gardelagen Massacre. So Gardelagen was a small town in Germany. It was right near a factory that was producing, I believe it was the V-2 rocket, with slave laborers. And as the Germans were retreating, they did not want these laborers who knew how to build these rockets to fall into the Allied hands. They wanted to eliminate these workers. They did not want to spend ammunition to shoot them. So what they did is they herded them into this giant barn, about a thousand of these prisoners. They lined the floor of the barn with straw and then locked the doors and set the barn on fire. Oh, my and Lord. murdered the people that way. Oh, and that's awful. Yeah, and my father's unit came across this massacre about a day or two after it happened and obviously left a, a lasting impression on him. After that, they came upon the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp and walked through that camp. It obviously made a huge impression on them. Oh, I bet. Um, You're talking about 20, 20-something-year-old young boys coming across yeah, this. October of 44, he would have been 21 years old. So yeah, he was just 21 years old when he was doing this. Wow, 21 years old. I think back when I was 21 years old, and I feel so sheltered now compared yeah, to what exactly. our parents' generation witnessed. I have to thank your dad and others for, shall we say, capturing the V2 rocket pads because my mom was in the Royal Air Force, but she was actually, she lived and was stationed in London, and she was the recipient of those V2 and V1 rockets oh, wow. during the war. Yeah. So all of a sudden, the rockets stopped, and that's because your yep. dad and others and the Allies were capturing those launch pads. So thank God for that. Yeah, they were basically a terror weapon. They had no ability to aim them. They just flew until they ran out of fuel and then dropped wherever they happened to be. Yeah, they called them, I forget whether it was the V1 or the V2, or both perhaps. My mother used to tell me they were called buzz bombs. Okay. Yeah, the V1 was a ramjet that made a humming sound. And she said whenever the buzzing stopped, they would either just drop or glide into the side of a of building yep. or what have you. And uh, they were devastating to the city yep. of London. As they continued through Germany, they were eventually heading down into Munich. They traveled through uh, Berkeskar, Hitler's hideout in the uh, Bavarian Alps. He carried a little camera with him throughout Europe, and he brought back, and it was, it was funny because they're very small format snapshots, maybe two inches square. He brought a number of those back, which I you know, was able to get and scan in digital format. And he had actual pictures from inside of Berchtesgaden of Hitler's hideout that he had taken when he was in there. That was pretty interesting. Eventually, they made their way down into Munich. As, as you probably know, Patton was appointed the military governor of Munich. Mm -hmm. And so he was under patent at this time. And basically, they were peacekeeping at that point. It was the end of the war, and they were trying to help the German people get back on their feet and so forth. Did he ever see Patton? Yes, got the opportunity to meet Patton. Patton was an avid collector of uh, guns. My father's unit, an ordnance company, had the opportunity to collect a lot of weapons and so forth on the battlefields after the battles were over. So they had amassed quite a collection of firearms. They had gotten the word that Patton wanted to visit them and looked at the collection of firearms and maybe take some of them. This was probably about in September of 45. Patton came to visit their unit. My father recollected it was a very rainy day and he didn't expect that Patton was going to show up. But sure enough, Patton came roaring in their unit in his big LaSalle limousine 
and came out and looked at all the guns and went through and picked a few of them out. The way Dad described it, he said he looked just like he did in the movie, the boots, the riding pants, and the ivory-handled pistols. Larger than life, right? Exactly. And he actually took a snapshot of Patton, a few of the other people that were traveling with him. But this was only a few weeks before Patton was fatally injured and actually in that same car and actually with that same driver. It was December 9th, 45. It's ironic that after all that Patton went through and everything that he would be killed in a Jeep accident or a, or a car accident, I should say. Yeah, it really is, especially because nobody else in the car was injured. Oh, it's just he was leaning forward. And I think when the car impacted the truck, he fell forward, hit his head against the seat in front of him, and I think it fractured one of his cervical vertebrae. He eventually died late December of 45. Did your dad mention anything about what he thought of Patton? Did he have an opinion about him? Or He didn't express liking him or disliking him. He referred to him as old blood and guts. Mm-hmm. I think because my father's unit was not really a fighting unit, they were a support unit, kind of logistics and support. So I don't think they felt the animosity that some of the fighting units did because of Pat's extremely aggressive fighting style. He had huge respect for him. He was a brilliant tactician and contributed in great part to winning the war. So when the war ended, where again was your dad? I think he was still in the, the northern part of Germany. I don't know exactly where he was on May 8th. We didn't pin it down that quick. Because again, he, as he said, you didn't know what day it was. You didn't know where you were. You're just kind of moving wherever your unit takes you. A lot of times you were kind of disoriented. You were just traveling day to day. Right. So now the, the war's over. What happened? When did he come back to the States? They had been in the theater for 19 months, so his unit was pretty much top of the line to come back home. So they departed from Munich by train for France somewhere between Christmas and New Year's Day of 1945. And he said it was a long, cold train ride across you know, Germany, France, and eventually to La Havre. They eventually departed La Havre, France, on uh, January 5th of 1946. Okay. And he described the passage back to the United States. He said it was just horrible. It was a Liberty ship, which were not comfortable ships at all to begin with. And they were designed to carry cargo, not people. And it made the ship ride very high in the water. Of course, northern Atlantic in January is not a pleasure cruise. So instead of taking five days, it took 17 days for him to cross the Atlantic. So they eventually arrived back in New York on uh, January 22nd of 1946. And I can imagine that in January in the North Atlantic was probably not smooth sailing. He said it was absolutely horrible. He said everybody on the ship was sick. It was just a terrible passage. It certainly takes away from the joy of returning home. Yeah, certainly does. But anyway, they arrived in uh, New York Harbor on January 22nd, and he was discharged from the Army on January 27th of 1946. He was processed actually in New Jersey at Fort Dick. Got it. So he's back home. All of a sudden, from all that adventure, all that sort of craziness going on, and it's scary, it's probably exciting, part of history. Got all these buddies he's been with for several years, and now he's back home. So what did your dad do when he got back home? So he got back home and obviously reunited with his family up in Syracuse and starting to think about what he wanted to do. My father was a very gifted artist. He decided he wanted to make art his career. So he and his brother Nick wanted to check out some art schools in New York City, checking to see if it would be paid for by the VA. Turns out it was. So he actually enrolled in an art school in New York City. After he graduated from that, he began a career in the advertising business. He kind of specialized in lettering. Back then, they didn't have computers, so all of the lettering was done by hand. And, you know, making the lettering fit within the margins that you needed to have it fit within. 
So that was what his profession was. But as a hobby, he loved to paint. He did oil paints, water paints. And some of my most precious possessions are paintings that my father did. I have a number of them, as do all my brothers and sisters. Those are certainly among my most prized possessions. Wow, that is great. Next time, whenever we're back at your house again, I'd love to see one of those paintings. Sure, I'd be glad to show you all of them. So let me ask you this question. How do you think your dad was affected or impacted by his time in the service? He didn't talk a whole lot about it, so it's hard for me to know. As all of the veterans of World War II felt an enormous amount of pride in the fact that they had basically saved the world from tyranny. But on a lighter note, I can tell you one thing. My father said unequivocally that he never wanted to go camping again. He <laughs> camped, his way, camped his way across Europe, and he never had any desire to sleep in a tent again for the rest of his life. So <laughs> that, was his, that was his most vocal comment on World War II. <laughs> He was definitely impacted. <laughs> it was funny because I was kind of an avid camper in my mm-hmm. late teens and early 20s. And I was always trying to convince him to go camping with us. And he wanted no part of that. Definitely. Uh, I did want to ask, how did your dad impact your life, Tom? Well, you know, as I say, this, this whole experience of preparing this interview was, uh, you know, was very moving. And I got to learn a lot about my dad. So, as I said, I had set up this framework for the interview. I told dad, I said, you know, it's probably going to take us a, a few sessions of sitting together and working our way through this interview. The outline was probably 10 pages or so. So I finally finished the outline and I had gone over to begin the first interview session. And we sat together for, I guess, about an hour or so going through the first few pages of the interview. At the end of it, I said, you know, I'll be back next week and we can continue. The unfortunate thing is that he passed away that night. So wow. I was never I was never able to finish the interview. So it was uh, it was a gift to be able to get that first session down on dates. It's something that I'll always prize very highly. Oh, but that was a, a real blessing that you were able to actually sit with him. And it sounded like you were both enjoying it thoroughly. And uh, Oh, very much so. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, now you've learned so much and I've learned a lot and our listeners are learning a lot about just some of the sacrifices that were made by so many young American men and women during the Second World War. I think as I reflect on what you told us about your dad, Paul, is that it is so important to listen to what our family members and friends have to say about experiences. I think to some degree the art of storytelling and families sitting around the table or or like you just sitting and having a cup of coffee and breakfast with your dad and asking him about his experience. Yeah, not just to listen, but to ask. A lot of times they don't volunteer the information. You have to ask them. For some reason, they feel like they're bragging if they sit and tell you about it. But you kind of have to ask them and kind of pry it out of them to find out about these experiences. It's well worth the effort to do that. I'm so glad you pointed that out because somebody has to take the initiative to say, I've got this person here who I care about. I know them as my dad or my grandpa or my grandmother. And I need to start the conversation by saying, hey, what was it like when you were in high school? Or what are your yeah, earliest absolutely. memories? Yeah, And then to record that somewhere, somehow, either as an interview or a document or something, it's important to record that. In my mind, I was doing it for future generations in my family to learn about their grandfather or great-grandfather and generations down the road as to what he did in World War II. Yes, and World War II, there's not too many veterans of that war who are still living now. Yeah, all of the ones in my family have passed on. Yeah, same with mine. 
we had them around and they were just people we interacted with daily. And we often didn't think about these things. And then people like you, thankfully, sit down and make the time to do that and ask the question. So I encourage all of our listeners. Uh, that's a matter of fact, one of the main points of this podcast is to get people to start telling stories and, and listen yeah. to stories and ask questions so that we can, we can preserve and, and, history. And don't wait. Do it today. I wish I had started earlier. You wish you did, but you also were able to have that time with him. And even though you would have loved to have had more, you really were able to record some of his thoughts and feelings. I understand that you actually recorded his voice in the interview. Yeah, we did. Uh, as I say, it was probably about an hour recording, probably got through two pages out of the 10 page outline. And I had intended to continue with the following Saturday, but it wasn't to be. Well, you've really given a good highlight of his military service. And he truly was a member of what we call the greatest generation. And uh, absolutely, we thank him for his service. Well, Tom, I want to thank you so much for being on your history, your story, and sharing the story of your dad, Paul. Thanks for the opportunity, James. I really enjoyed being here. We really enjoyed having you, Tom. And again, I just want to encourage everybody, like, like Tom said, don't wait. Ask those questions and Talk to those friends and family members who have a story to tell. So with that, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us on our show today. And until next time, have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.